today, what I want to do is just lead with a question. And the question is this. What do you do when God disappoints you to a level that you never expected that you, you could experience or that you should experience? What do you do when you, in, you encounter trials or you experience suffering to, to a level that, that, that begins to prompt questions that usually begin with the word why? You know, why, God? Why is this happening? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you protect me from this? And, and perhaps all the why questions could be summed up with this question of, of just, just saying, God, I, I realize as a Christ follower, I'm not immune to trials and suffering. I just never thought I would experience as a Christian suffering and disappointment at this level. And I'm not talking about, you know, stub toes, flat tires, missed flights, and someone raised the rent. I'm talking about the kind of deep interior pain that, that bruises the spirit or bruises the soul to the extent where you feel like you're, you're bleeding internally. Maybe you're, you're, you're single and um, you, you've had this longing in your heart for someone to love and to... And to take interest in you, to care for you. You've got lots of friends and you've been to their weddings and you've, you've rejoiced with them. You've celebrated with them and, and you've longed for that experience for yourself. You long for someone to take that, that kind of interest in you and it happens. You meet somebody and, and, and they, they do take interest in you. And there are, there are conversations, late conversations at night and a, and a friendship grows. A relationship is, is born and, uh, and there's dates. In fact, there's even conversation about future and, and what, what might the future look and the word marriage has been brought up and, and you're full of anticipation because this, is, this has been your dream and, and it feels so good when someone is interested in you. But then there was that, that date, that dinner when they told you, I, I just don't love you anymore. I'm, I'm not attracted to you anymore. And it's like a sledgehammer just crushes your heart. Or, or maybe you, know, you and your husband are watching a football game and it's a great football game because it's your team and they're winning. And that's, that's always good. And you're enjoying the game and, uh, and you get up. Your husband is still in the living room and, uh, and you get up and you go into the kitchen and you're getting some drinks. And as you're there, you hear a crash. You hear uh, the popcorn bowl fall to the ground and, and, and shatter. And you call out your husband's name to find out if everything's okay. There's no response. And you finish getting the drinks and you walk back into the living room and you see him slumped over in his chair. And before you know it, you're dialing 911 and paramedics have filled your house and they break the news to you that your husband has died of a massive heart attack. Or maybe you're a parent and one of your children is diagnosed with a mental health issue. And through the years, there have been many sleepless nights. As this child has gone through school, there's been multiple visits to the principal's office. There have been all kinds of visits to counselors and all kinds of visits to doctors. And, and it really actually, it seemed like things were getting better until that one night when there was a knock on the door and you open the door and there's two police officers and they introduce a chaplain to you who breaks the news that your child has taken their life. What, what, do, you, what do you do with that? Each of those scenarios are not fictitious. They're actually stories that the people have experienced and walked through. 
What do you do when you experience pain and suffering to the extent that you never thought could happen to you or should happen to you because you're following after God and, and he's supposed to protect you from that? What do you, how do you go on? What do you do? And really, right from the very beginning of 1 Samuel, what we have is we have a, a woman who is experiencing significant pain and disappointment. As the curtain rises on 1 Samuel, we're introduced to characters, and one of the first characters we're introduced to is Hannah. She is a woman who is experiencing deep, significant disappointment. And what I want to do this morning as we get going in our series called Choices, I want to look at the, really the, the anatomy, the contours of Hannah's pain. And I want us to understand the context of it and, and feel her pain and then get a, get a sense for what happened. How did, her, how did her heart change? How did her countenance change? And then what I want to do is, is go, from a, go from the story that was written probably around 1200 B.C., to take this story that took place around 1200 B.C. and and then go forward 3,200 years to to October 2014 to Salem, Oregon and say, what does that story have to do with my story here today? Because perhaps you're here today and you're carrying a weight of disappointment. Or maybe you're here today and you're carrying a scar of disappointment. Or maybe sometime in the future you might find yourself in a place of pain. What do you do when that happens. So I just want to dive right in and, 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 and talk about Hannah's pain so that you have a sense for it. You, you get it really in the first two verses. We're introduced to Elkanah. He, he's this, this guy who, who married Hannah. Hannah is his first love. Uh, he, he marries Hannah. Her name means favored. Uh, we don't know if they're like high school sweethearts or how they met or anything like that, but we do know that they got married. And we also know in that culture that it was not uncommon for a husband to take a second wife. Wouldn't recommend it today, but back then, that that was pretty common. Here's why it was common. When you married your first wife, if she couldn't produce children, you would take a second wife and, and, and hope that she could have kids so that the family could be established. And right away, when Elkanah takes this second wife, a rivalry is born. Their strife is introduced into the household. Uh, and you, you see it real quick because the second wife, her name is Peninnah, uh, second wife is having kids, Hannah is not having kids, and as the story unfolds, Peninnah is telling Hannah that, and reminding Hannah that that is in fact the case. Now, Even as I talk about that, I talk about a woman who can't have a child. Some of you who have already thought in your mind, I know somebody like that. I I know somebody who struggled to get pregnant or still struggling to be able to conceive and have a child. Um, Or maybe that was even you. Maybe that is you. You know the deep pain, the anguish that comes from not being able to conceive and, and, and become pregnant. And, and to give birth. So you, you know that pain. And, and let me just say, with all due respect, as significantly painful as that is, that is not the same level of pain that Hannah was experiencing. Let me just flesh out the context of that so you understand just how deep this wound is for Hannah. Hannah is living in a culture that, that, 
that really the importance of, of childbirth is, is huge on, on multiple levels. First level is this. Um, the more kids you had, the, 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 the stronger that your economic status would be. Because the husband, maybe he's a farmer, a baker, or he made shoes, or whatever his job was, that the kids that were born into the family, they would join the labor force. So the more kids you have, the more money you make. So the more kids you have equals stronger economic status. But if you don't have children, the smaller your labor force is, which means you have lower economic status or economic income. So it's just just the reality of the day of you had children, and one of the reasons you had children was that they would join the family business and uh, and they would provide financially for the the present. That's one level of, of, of how Hannah wasn't measuring up. The second level is this. It was also expected that as the children are joining the workforce of the day, they are also providing for future financial security. There's no 401ks, there's no IRAs, there's no savings plans, there's no pension plans. Your children would provide for you as you got older. Can I get an amen in the house? All right? That, that was the reality of the day. I, I, those are great times. Uh, the, the reality was, the more children you had, the better you'd be cared for as you grew older when you couldn't physically dig ditches or maybe planting seed or harvesting in, in, in harvesting season. So that, that'd be another level of pain. A third level of pain is that the reality that as you gave birth, in those days, infant mortality or infant mortality rates were, were pretty high. About four out of 10 children that were born in 1200 BC would not make it to adulthood. So 40% of the children that were born in that day would not survive. Now, what this has to do with is, is yes, the, the family dynamic and, and economics and future security, but community-wide, the larger a family was, was the larger a clan was, which made the larger a tribe would be. And large tribes, when you put them all together, formed a nation. And the more population you had in your nation protected you from outside attacks from other nations. So the higher your birth rate is, the higher your national security would be. In fact, in Hannah's day, if you are a woman and you're giving birth to children, you are a hero. You are a patriot if you give birth to children. But Hannah is not giving birth to children. There's one other level of pain here that that Hannah is experiencing, and it it has to do with a theological reason that's going on here. The idea was that if you had children, you were blessed by God, you were favored by God. If you didn't have children, there was something wrong with you spiritually. You were under some sort of of curse. And where that comes from, uh, Job 15, it says the godless... Job 15, 34, the godless are barren. Those who live a life as if there is no God or live in rebellion against God, the the curse for that is barrenness. Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is, is speaking the blessings that come from obeying God and his covenant. And he's also speaking about the curses that accompany uh, the, 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 the tribes as they disobey God. If you obey God, you, your refrigerator is full. It says your basket is full. But there's food in the house and the women will give birth to children. If you disobey God, your basket, your refrigerator will be empty and your women will be barren. 
So what is happening here, we have a woman who was the first wife of Elkanah. The second wife is added because Hannah is not giving birth to children. Peninnah is giving birth to children. And what she is doing is she's rubbing this in Hannah's nose day in, day out. In fact, as you heard the story being read by Matt, there's this annual trip to Shiloh. Shiloh is like the religious center of the day. And they're going there to, to feast and to offer sacrifices. And, and on this trip, Elkanah, is, he's, he's, he's passing out portions of meat that they'll, they'll eat at the feast, as well as portions for the sacrifice. And it's at these moments that Peninnah is saying to Hannah, man, you are a drain on our family. You're not, you're not giving birth to children. You're, you're draining the budget month in, month out. In fact, you know, you're hurting our retirement. In fact, you're pretty useless as it comes to our tribe. And you know what? Deep down, there's some secret, isn't there? There's some reason you're not having kids because we know that if you obey God, you can have children, and if you disobey God, you're barren. You've got a problem, Hannah. And Peninnah is rubbing Hannah's nose in this day in and day out. In fact, what the story says is she would taunt her. That word is, is sometimes it's translated, she would irritate her. It's a Hebrew word that, that's a word picture, and it means storm clouds are brewing. There's storm clouds brewing in Hannah's heart. She is in anguish. She's angry. She's weeping, and not the kind of silent weeping. She's, she's wailing. She's sobbing in her pain. That, that is the contours of Hannah's pain and disappointment. Now, Elkanah, bless his heart, says to Hannah after she's been taunted, and this is year after year. This is not a one-time thing. This is every time they go to Shiloh, this happens. Elkanah, verse 8, why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't, why aren't you eating? How come you, how come you don't have an appetite? Why be downhearted? Why are you so depressed and sad? Just because you have no children. You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Oh, Elkie baby. If, <laughs> if you only knew. Hannah. Hannah's in torment. She is carrying a deep, deep wound. And no one understands. No one seems to get it. But she, she goes, well, what, what does she do? She, she goes to church after a sacrificial meal. She, she's experiencing all the taunting and all the irritation. The storm clouds are brewing and she's experiencing pain. Her, her rival, um, the, the wife, the rival wife is making fun of her. Elkanah doesn't understand her, doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to, fully comprehend her pain. So what does she do? She, she goes to church. She goes to temple, and she begins to go and, and pray, and um, she's in deep anguish, and she, she prays. I mean, notice her prayer in verse 11. She says, I'm, she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer, let me just stop right there. Lord of heaven's armies, if you, were, look, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer, She's making an assumption here. She's, she's acknowledging that God is all-powerful. He's the God of angel armies. 
He's the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He is almighty. He is omnipotent. He can do anything. He can say a word and something is created out of nothing. And Hannah understands that this is who God is. And then she makes the assumption that not only is he all powerful, he is full of compassion. That he would notice an obscure rural woman in some backwater village who is in deep pain. And isn't that the biblical picture of who God is? He's all powerful and full of compassion at the same moment. And she makes this assumption that this all-powerful God would notice this obscure rural woman in her pain. And so she says, God, uh, Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. He'll be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that, that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. It sounds like horse trading, doesn't it? God, if you give me what I want, I will, I'll do this for you. You ever prayed a prayer like that? I mean, I have. I, God, if you'll do this, then I mean, you can count on me for this. And, you know, I, I understand. I mean, I think God is gracious. And, and, uh, but oftentimes we find ourselves praying manipulative prayers. That's not what's happening here. It appears that way. But let me explain this for a moment. What, what, if you wanted to be a, a priest in the temple, you needed to be from a certain tribe, and that tribe was for the tribe of Levi. Elkanah is from the tribe of Ephraim. So you can't, you can't just be a priest. But, but if you're not from the tribe of Levi, there is another way that you can, you can serve in the temple. You can be an assistant to a priest, and you do that by becoming a Nazarite. And by, by being a Nazarite, when, when Hannah says, I won't cut his hair, that's one of the requirements of a Nazarite. The, the full description of Nazarites found in Numbers chapter 6. No alcohol touches your lips, your hair is never cut. So, so Hannah is saying, God, uh, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you, and he will be a, a Nazarite, he will be an assistant to the temple. Now you need to hear, you need to see what's going on, because it's quite beautiful here. Peninnah, the rival wife, Peninnah is, is saying to Hannah, Hannah, you are worthless. You have no identity because you can't give birth to children. She's taken, Peninnah's taken a good thing and made it the ultimate thing. That is the definition of idolatry. When you take something that is good and you make it the ultimate thing, mean more important than a, than a relationship with God. That's what Peninnah is saying. She's saying to Hannah, Hannah, you are worthless. Your identity is in question. We don't even know if, if you're fully, we know you've got some sort of spiritual problem because you can't give birth to kids. And the cultural pressures of the day were, were pressuring women, oppressing, oppressing women to, to make childbirth and having a family be the ultimate thing. Now, there's idolatry in every culture, and yes, there's idolatry in our culture. It's different, but just a few of the idols in our culture, the cultural pressures to say, here's how you find your worth, this is what your identity is rooted in, would be things like money, and sex, and pleasure, and beauty. What we say is that if you've got money, if you're sleeping with somebody, if you're having fun at some certain level, and if you're hot and attractive, then you are somebody. If you're not, well, your, your identity, your worth is, is a bit suspect. I mean, just think, just pick one of those. Pick, let's pick money for a moment. 
What if this next week there's some financial crisis and you lose everything you have, your business fails, you lose your job, your portfolio is gone, your savings is gone, you have nothing, your house is taken away, you've got nothing. Now that is significant disappointment. What's your attitude gonna be with God? What, what, how's your heart going to relate to God? Because oftentimes when our idols are those kind of things, what we do is we say, we, we bought into this lie that life goes better with Jesus. And when life doesn't go better, we go try and put our eggs in some other basket. When you take good things and make them the ultimate thing, that's idolatry. That's what Peninnah has doing. Now let's see, this is what Hannah is doing that's so beautiful. She's saying, God, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. He will be a Nazarite. What she is doing is refusing to bow to the cultural pressures of finding significance in having a, a son. And how she's doing that is she's saying, I'm going to give him back to you, which means the son who is about to be born, his name is Samuel. Samuel, the name means God has heard. She's going to take this son and give him to uh, the, the temple that will happen probably when he's around two or three years old. Which means that, first of all, it's great faith by Hannah because if you know anything about Eli's parenting skills, that's a huge, that's a huge risk. But it also means that Samuel will not be available to join the labor force in the family business. Which means there will be no retirement plan. It also means when all the other women are walking around the village with their kids in tow and, and kind of showing that they have value and worth, Hannah will not have a child to take around the village to prove that she is somebody. What she's refusing to do is bow to the cultural pressures. The cultural pressures of idolatry, what she's saying is, I'm going to give my son back to God. She knows that having a child is a good thing, but God is the ultimate. And most Israelite women knew that in giving, to, giving birth, that they were connected to a promise given to Abraham when God took him outside his tent and said, look at the heavens, look at the stars, and, and know this, your, de your descendants will outnumber the stars in the heavens. And there is a deliverer coming. And Israelite women, this was not their first thought, but they knew this, that in childbirth, that, that they were participating in God's plan for salvation for the nations. And it's as if Hannah is saying, I'm not gonna take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. I'm gonna take a good thing and I'm gonna align it within God's purposes for humanity. God, I'm gonna give you my son. He's gonna serve you. He's gonna, he's gonna be dedicated to you. And by the way, Samuel does end up becoming a deliverer. He's actually born in some pretty dark times. But he will be a deliverer. He will, he will usher in a new era the heir of kings in Israel. And God indeed will use him. Now, Hannah is crying out to God. She's saying, God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. It's not manipulative. She's participating in God's purposes. And have you ever had a day that just, multiple days, it just, it just sucks? And then life just gets suckier? It just, I mean, it's like pain upon pain. And it's like I, 
you know, I had this disappointment and that was bad enough and now this disappointment happened and this, this, this came in and here Hannah's dealt with years of accusations and being taunted and as she's pouring out her soul, the priest, Eli, is watching her and seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he comes to the conclusion that she's been drinking. He, she, he calls her a wicked woman, tells her to throw away her wine and so she's backpedaling and having to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I haven't been drinking. My soul is in anguish. I feel like my soul is bruised. And I'm pouring out my prayer to God. Please don't think I'm a wicked woman. And Eli responds by saying to Hannah, in that case, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Now check this out. The next verse, verse 18 Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. And she went back and began to eat again. And she was no longer sad. Eli says, in that case, may the God of Israel grant your request. And she gets her appetite back. And she's no longer sad. Notice that it doesn't say, and she became pregnant. It just says, this priestly blessing was given to her and it changed her outlook so much so that she got her appetite back. Now, let me go back to the original question. Let me just say, it'd be really good for you to read the rest of chapter one and read chapter two and get into chapter three. And chapter two is this beautiful song. It's a song of, of reversal of circumstances. It mirrors Mary's song in Luke chapter one. It's as, as if Mary knew Hannah's song. But what do you do when you experience pain and disappointment to a level you thought you never could experience or should experience? Pain that leads to a disappointment in God. Well, if you look at the story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we just put some practical steps for you and I today. This is where we're, we're traveling from 1200 BC to 2014. And, and it begins by just keep coming to God in your pain. Hannah, after all the torment, the continual taunting, the, the trash talking, the Richard Sherman-like trash talking that she's getting year in and year out from Penina, the lack of understanding on behalf of her husband, baby, you got me. And a priest who will misjudge her, she just keeps coming back to God. She goes to the temple. You know, I, in our series this summer, uh, Night Vision series, you heard, you heard me say that complaining to God is worship. Complaining about God is rebellion. Complaining to God is worship. We, ha we have a God who's all-powerful, and full of compassion. That is the biblical God. And he allows us, in fact, he invites us to come as we are and to bring our pain and to say, I don't like this. For the purpose of expressing our heart and even asking for a reversal of our circumstances and yet landing in a place of trust where I don't get this God, but I believe you've heard me and I'm gonna keep coming back to you in my pain. Complaining to God is worship. Complaining about God is rebellion. So when you find, your, find yourself in a place of deep disappointment, just keep coming back to God. 
You don't, you don't, this is really hard to do because especially as it, as it looks like in coming to church because you are in pain and everything in you wants to hide your pain. You don't want to talk about that. It's, it's, it's going to be vulnerable. Yet there's this, this healing. You saw Ron up here today breaking into tears as he's talking about going back to Paris. You think that was easy for him? He had to do it five times this weekend. There's healing and just keeping coming back to God. Here's the second thing I would say from this story. It's belief. You know, Hannah gets her appetite back. Her countenance changes. The, the de- clouds of depression lift. Why? Not because she was suddenly pregnant. Because a priest said, may God grant you what your request was. And that was it. And she grabbed hold of like this, this little life preserver of hope in an ocean of disappointment and latched onto it and it changed her perspective on life. It, it's, what happens is when we hit pain and, and, and experience deep disappointment, we have questions that rise within us. And as I mentioned early on, they usually begin with the word why. And asking our questions is good and healthy. We must ask our questions. I've asked questions. There's, I don't fully understand all the reasons why God does certain things or allows things to happen. In my family, in our, our city, in our world, I've got questions. But what happens is if we don't land in places of trust, our questions give birth to, to things like cynicism and skepticism. And let me just say, when you get to a place where you're cynical about who God is and about God's heart, and you're skepti- skeptical about his heart and who he is, it's like spiritual toxins for the soul. There is nothing more dangerous than an unbelieving believer. And I would say there's nothing more dangerous to the community of faith than unbelieving believers. People who don't just fall on the character of Christ, they challenge and question the character of who God is. I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask questions. We ask our questions. And here's what I'm also not saying. I'm not saying that if you believe hard enough, you will get what you want. That is not what's happened. That's not the message conveyed in the text. But what I am saying, I'm saying that whatever God gives you to latch onto, latch onto it, hold it as a life preserver in this, in this ocean of disappointment and suffering, and, and believe in the word He's given to you, even if it's just one sentence. The reality is. We can't flex our faith muscles or our belief muscles to the point we, that we somehow manipulate God to get what we want. I'm not saying that. Hannah's story, there is a reversal of circumstances. She will go from being barren to having children. And she will give Samuel as a Nazarite to the temple. In fact, chapter 2, she sings a song of reversal. I was hungry and you fed me. And the people that were feeding are now hungry. You took the poor and you've made them rich. And you took the the people who were wealthy and you made them beg. This reversal of circumstances that took place in her life. And let me just say this, that, that as we endure suffering and trials and difficulties in our lives, that, I don't know what the percentage is, but 
We don't all see the reversal of circumstances in this life, but all of us in Jesus Christ will see our circumstances reversed when we see him face to face. There will be a great reversal. And Hannah knows this, and so she believes. Thomas Aquinas said these words, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Third thing I would say, just living out this story. We keep coming to God in your pain, we believe, and we suffer well. This really isn't a a popular notion in our day. Because kind of like Peninnah saw barrenness as God's rejection, I think sometimes we look at suffering as there's something wrong with us. Do you know when the early church in the first three centuries, when they grew, do you know the primary reason that they reached their neighbors and reached their cities? It wasn't because of the miracles that the apostles did, although they they were significant miracles and signs and wonders and uh, powerful, led, led people to Jesus. It wasn't even because of fantastic preaching. Although they were sermons ever preached that led thousands to a saving relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. As you read church history in the first three centuries of the early church, the most powerful apologetic, the most powerful witness to an unbelieving world was how the early church processed their suffering. Their homes were taken from them. They watched their relatives, they watched their neighbors being thrown to the lions. They watched the brutality of the persecution of the early church and the pagans in those pagan nations would watch and see how the Christians suffered and they they were convinced that they must be worshiping the true living God and the church grew. It's so counterintuitive, which is even why today, when you hear about countries enduring significant persecution of the church, what you'll also find out is that there's this counterintuitive growth that takes place. And I believe it's because people are suffering well. Paul was whipped. He was stoned the old-fashioned way. He was whipped time and time again. He was was cold. He was so hot. He, He just experienced all this pain. And yet he lands in this place of saying, I am so focused on the goal. I'm running the race. How did he do that? All about perspective. See, if your perspective is this is all there is and this is the ultimate thing, then what will happen is you're, you're gonna pull back when suffering. You're gonna take steps back away from God when, when there's pain attached to it. But when you understand that the kingdom of God, when Jesus Christ is the ultimate, all the good things pale in comparison. And you suffer well. One last quote, which you won't like. Ignatius of Loyola. If God gives you an abundant harvest of trials, it is a sign of great holiness, which he desires you to attain. Do you want to become a great saint? Ask God to send you many sufferings. The flame of divine love never rises higher than when fed with the wood of the cross, which the infinite charity of the Savior used to finish his sacrifice. All the pleasures of the world are nothing compared with the sweetness 
found in the gall and vinegar offered to Jesus Christ. That is, hard and painful things endured for Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ. What do you do when you experience deep disappointment, when you experience pain that you never thought you could or should experience? You keep coming to God, a God who is almighty and full of compassion. You believe. Whatever he offers to you as hope, you latch on. And you suffer well. Knowing that, as Paul knew, that the joy of sharing in the power of the resurrection of Christ as well as in the fellowship of his sufferings. 